thanks everyone. So this is my first talk about my very first book, and if it's anything like my first lesson as a teacher, then we'll be lucky just to get to the end. Um, we'll be even lucky if we can do so without anybody getting up to leave to go to the toilet, um, or to lose a book, or even approaching me at the front in just their socks to say that their shoes have somehow dropped out of a third floor window, and can they go and get them? Start the time. Um, so I'd like to tell a story tonight about the future of learning, and it begins a decade ago in that classroom on the Old Kent Road with an exuberant group of 13-year-olds. Um, at first, we struggled. They didn't know much about Shakespeare, and I knew even less about teaching. Um, I'd been to a lovely primary school in the countryside and a secondary school that even had its own pack of beagles. And I just thought that teaching was about standing up in front of a classroom and talking about ideas. But it was a long way from dead poet society. The kids I was teaching faced real challenges. Um, about half of them were on free school meals. Two-thirds of them spoke English as a second language. All of them um, came from two estates down in Elephant and Castle called the Haygate and the Aylesbury that have since been demolished. And they all came to school as well behind um, where they should have been in their reading and their writing. Um, it was really frustrating. I was sort of left on my own to figure things out in the classroom. And around us, the world was changing really fast. Um, the kids had smartphones and they were beginning to live in the future. But I felt like my methods would have been really familiar to Socrates, <laughs> particularly if the Agora had been full of kids who were dedicating their lives to coming up with original your mum cusses. <laughs> um, the summer that those students left school, uh, the, the prediction was made that 40% um, of all the jobs that they were planning on doing as adults were going to be automated by the time they reached their 30th birthdays. They were growing up in a difficult world. And if, as John, Lanch John, John Lanchester has said, the robots are coming and they're going to eat all the jobs, I thought we needed to do a much better, much better job of teaching our kids. At the same time, I was hopeful, and the talks tonight have given me um, even more hope. I was hopeful because of the advances that I was reading that we were making um, in our understanding of the mind and neuroscience and psychology and early childhood development. I was also hopeful because of the inventions that we were making, um, our computers and our VR and our AI. And I thought that if we used these things really well, we might be able to bring learning up to date. We might be able to transform it for the 21st century and maybe get more out of our minds than we ever had before. But I wasn't really sure what kids were capable of, um, nor was I sure what they should be learning in the 21st century. And it was those two ideas that set me off three years ago um, on the journey that I describe in my book. And it's taken me and my work has taken me to six continents um, to visit the most groundbreaking schools, meet the most trailblazing teachers, um, and explore the latest and most cutting-edge advance advances in our science and our technology. And tonight I just want to share briefly three visits I made. Um, so I wanted to know just how much we were capable of learning. So I started by traveling to Korea 
on a warm Thursday morning, I found myself standing outside a concrete school hall in Songdo, future city, on the outskirts of Seoul, as across the country, hundreds of thousands of Korean teenagers were sitting through the eight grueling hours of the Sunyung, an exam which takes place on a single day each year and is considered the world's toughest. The exam decides kids' entire lives. At the end of it, you get a national rank, um, and it defines what university you can go to, what kind of job you can do. Um, it decides your whole life. And I was there to meet a boy called Seung Bin Lee, who was sort of a mild-mannered 17-year-old, who at that very moment was sitting inside the exam hall, about to get started, his hands shaking. Um, the country was really exam-crazy. That morning, police on motorbikes had lined the streets, ready to accompany anybody who was running late to get to the exam hall. Um, in the weeks running up to the exam, newspapers ran articles saying what you should wear, what you should eat on the day in order to optimize your exam performance, even what offerings you should leave for the gods for luck. During the 45 minutes of the English listening exam that afternoon, all flights in Korea were grounded so as not to affect the kids' concentration. Korean learning, you see, is all about marginal gains. In fact, afterwards, um, Seung Bin confided to me that at the beginning of the exam, he'd been worried about overheating, and so he'd sneaked off to the toilet to remove his underpants. I didn't ask him where he put them for the rest of the exam. Um, but success was in these details. He said that during the exam, it was better not to think. You had to get into the zone and sort of become an instrument of pure exam-taking technique. It was extreme, but actually, South Korea shows us the power of education. 50 years ago, um, the country was coming out of the Korean War, and it was broke and relying on aid handouts. Four, four in five Koreans then were um, illiterate. Today, its economy has grown 40,000%. Its GDP has grown that much. And it's one of the world's leading high-tech economies with companies like Hyundai and Samsung. It has the highest proportion of university graduates of any country in the world. When the OECD administered its PISA test to find out which country had the smartest 15-year-olds in 2010, Korea came top. And the miracle was man-made. I spoke to an education minister called um, Juho Lee, and he told me that Korea has no resources, just its minds and hard work. But the hard work was also taking a heavy toll in Korea. Before I left, Seung Bin showed me his revision timetable. In the three years leading up to the Sunyung, he'd worked 14 hours a day, five days a week. And he'd also worked 12 hours a day on Saturday and Sunday. Korea's got the highest teen suicide rate of any country in the world. When I spoke to some adults, they cried about their time um, in school still. Uh, one successful entrepreneur who was now in her 30s explained that during the period of the Sunyung, her hair had fallen out. When I asked Seung Bin what he did to deal with the stress, he looked at me strangely and paused. And he said, I know it sounds strange, but all I can do is work even harder. The second thing I wanted to find out 
on my journey was about our computers. Could our machines augment our intelligence? I'd heard a lot about things coming out of Silicon Valley, the kind of point zero of the tech tsunami. And I'd heard that maybe we'd be able to make our minds unimaginably more powerful than they were already by using our latest tech. At rocket ship schools in San Jose, I caught a glimpse of my first robot teachers, but they weren't androids with human faces. Rather, they were bits of intelligent software within virtual learning environments. At Rocketship, they have something called the Learning Lab. And after I'd sat through half an hour of the head teacher, Miss Guerrero, leading the kids through a sing-along to Taylor Swift's Shake It Off, we went there to check it out. Um, in a cavernous room, I saw 125-year-olds in purple polo shirts and outsized headphones sitting in rows in front of laptops. All you could hear was the soft sound of small fingers tapping on keys. Each of the kids was using a program called ST Maths. And as they were working on it, the software was learning about their strengths and weaknesses and then adapting itself to the kids so they would get tasks that would build on their strengths or fix their weaknesses. Teachers dropped their kids off here in the learning lab for between 60 and 90 minutes every day, and it was working. Kids from rocket ships outperform their peers on English and maths. But at the same time, I wondered if it really made sense for machines to be teaching small children the kinds of things that they could already do better than children themselves. In 1997, when IBM's computer DeepMind beat Garry Kasparov at chess, it seemed to signal the end of human intelligence. The machines were going to be better. Some people that I met in Silicon Valley even spoke about this idea of the singularity, when we'd be able to merge our minds with superintelligent machines and become imaginably more clever. But actually, what's interesting is that in games these days between, chess games these days between humans and computers, uh, it's not the best grandmasters or the most powerful machines that win. Who actually wins those games are teams of amateur, strong amateur players using multiple laptops. People are able to learn to use their tools to overcome the other challenges. Down the coast at High Tech High, I saw this in action in education. Um, High Tech High is a school in San Diego where essentially, on top of learning English and maths, all the other work is organized into projects. And in this one classroom, which felt sort of like a futuristic design lab, I saw different groups of kids working on different things. One group was um, making biodegradable seed pods. Another group was scripting a documentary. Still a third group were making drones from scratch. And at the end of this project, they were planning to go on a five-day trek into the California wilderness to make an aerial survey of a local state park and then to identify which species um, were struggling and to replenish them using their seed pods. This was very California. Lastly, I wanted to know how we could use 
schools to build stronger societies and better well-being um, to increase happiness. So I went to Finland um, and arranged a meeting with uh, Finland's most famous teacher, Pekka Peura. At the start of his classroom, Pekka Peura asked his kids a question and got them to beam in their answers um, using their phones. And he then displayed the answers A, B, C, and D um, on a bar chart. Then I expected him to reveal the answer, but he didn't. He told the kids to turn and talk to one another. Um, and a few minutes later, after they'd explained why they'd chosen certain answers and what they'd put, he asked them to beam their answers in again. And the bar chart had changed. The students had taught each other. Piura told me afterwards that he saw his whole job as being giving kids the skills and attitudes that they needed to become learners themselves. He was studying how Google created its most successful teams um, and using the principles that he was learning to guide his classroom practice. So at the beginning of the year, he gave kids all of the tests, all of the content, all of the answers to the tests that they needed. And then he just coached them on their skills of individual and collective learning, giving them feedback on things like perseverance and resilience and cooperation. At the end of the year, he even got the students to give themselves their own grades. Finns love education. The country has 10 applicants for every one place on its primary um, teacher training programs. It's one of the most prestigious jobs that you can do in Finland. The training includes learning to play the piano and learning to ice skate. When I asked Peora what he did if his kids fell behind using his approach, he looked at me strangely and said, what is behind? I just want the kids to be making progress from where they are to where they need to go next. And Finland makes more of its people than any other country in the world. It comes top in the World Economic Forum's Human Capital Index. A recent UN report says it's the happiest country in the world. It's also a hotbed of creativity, home to companies like Nokia and Angry Birds um, and strange inventive sports like um, hobby horsing which is a sort of imaginary show jumping that's been invented by Finnish kids. <laughs> it's also home to more heavy metal bands than any other country uh, per capita than any other country in the world, and Pekka Peura was in one. Um, but as I encountered all of these stories around the world, I thought often of my students um, back in South London. So we had succeeded in the end and all of the students got the C or above that they needed at GCSE. But the way that we got there through extra English classes um, and practicing exam technique really left me feeling like I had failed them. Today, Tammy is a nurse and Benga is taking photos part-time, um, but Amanda is unemployed, Emmanuel um, is in prison. All of them were and are capable of a lot more. In the UK today, that's true for all kids. Close to half of 16-year-olds in this country don't leave school with at least a C in English and maths. And that's a pretty low bar that I think 99% of kids are capable of achieving. Today, still in the 21st century, one in five adults in the UK is illiterate. Well-being is at an all-time low amongst our young people. So school isn't giving kids what they need to thrive in today's world. 
let alone equipping them to take on the big challenges of tomorrow, like climate change or automation, um, inequality. But it, but it really could. If we could help kids to learn as much as they do in Korea, or to use tech like they do at High Tech High, or to develop their full human faculties of creativity and cooperation like they do in Finland, or to grow their mindfulness like they're doing at some incredible schools in the US, or to develop their critical thinking like they're doing at Philosophy for Children in schools across the UK, then I really think we could transform learning. While looking for the future, I realize that our greatest invention isn't the computer or VR or the smartphone or AI, but it's school. We just need to use all of the science that we're learning, all of our latest inventions, to update it for the 21st century. As Aaron Sorkin put it in the West Wing, education is the silver bullet. We just have to stop bringing up our kids to be like robots and instead invest everything we can in developing them as clever, creative, caring humans. Thank you.